This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, the dust has settled. I've been after Jim Margolis and Ron Klain to join us for months. Margolis, the ad man responsible for the paid campaign of Obama for America and so many other efforts, and Klain, the master behind-the-scenes player, chief of staff to the last two Democratic vice presidents, Al Gore and Joe Biden, and now the general counsel of Steve Case's revolution and president of Case Holdings. As I said, I've been after them for a long time. During the campaign, Margolis was almost always on a shoot, in the editing room, or planning a media buy in new ways to get the Obama campaign's message in front of persuadable voters. No time for radio shows then. And Klain, he was also working hard behind the scenes to prepare President Obama and Vice President Biden for their debates against Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. Both of them said we'll have to wait until the dust has settled. But the dust has settled. We know it has, and we're pleased to welcome the first of our most creative minds in politics to our program, Jim Margolis, president of Greer Margolis. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here today. Thanks. Um, Just focusing first, Jim, on stuff that we're hearing about, listening to from this week. Uh, David Korn, Mother Jones, uh, another exclusive. He is able to get audio of what sounds like an opposition research meeting in the McConnell campaign in Kentucky. You hear Mitch McConnell beginning the meeting and then uh, several of his um, oppo research guys laying out the case against uh, Ashley Judd. What's your view of this kind of dialogue that we heard from Kentucky and whether it's fair game to make big hay about it or not? Well, look, in every campaign, uh, the candidates and and the operatives who are involved are going to spend some time taking a look at the opposition. You know, you also spend a good deal of time taking a look at yourself in terms of what your own vulnerabilities are. And um, that process is not a peculiar one. Now, I I think what made this a little bit different was um, two things. One, the fact that they were really focusing and and thinking about uh, potentially running a campaign that included discussions of her mental health and, and, you know, deeply personal kinds of issues like that I found troubling and surprising. And the second thing is the the unwillingness of uh, Leader McConnell to even talk about it. At every turn, what he tried to do was um, sort of switch it back and make this about some liberal conspiracy to go after uh, to go after him. And and I th- I think that's you know um, sort of speaks for itself. So overall, the campaigns take a look at and think about some of the vulnerabilities of their opponents, obviously. In this instance, were they in the right territory in terms of having those conversations? I think not. And do I think Senator McConnell owes some people some explanations about why they were there? And, uh, you know, I do. So take us back then maybe a year or two. Uh, You narrow in on who will be your likely opponent in the 2012 presidential campaign. It looks like it'll be Governor Romney. And as a similar type of sounding opposition researchers will continue to look for the needle in the haystack of Governor Romney's record in Massachusetts or in the way McConnell described it, the haystack uh, in the pile of needles. Um, <laughs> what what was it like a year, year and a half ago, two years ago, as you began to assess the strengths and weaknesses of opponents that President Obama might face? 
You know, well, I think I think Josh, it's um, it's really an interesting question. If you think back to a year before the campaign, even just at the environment that we were dealing in, you know, you had eight percent unemployment. You had a president with an approval rating under fifty percent. For those of us who do this for a living, those are kind of warning signs. Um, you had a lot of concerns about the economy, and that's a pretty challenging sort of um, environment. On the other side. Uh, we also had a president who people liked, even if they thought things were kind of moving sort of slowly in terms of the economic recovery, and they wanted it to move faster. They, they had a president who uh, they thought understood their problems. Um, the Romney campaign and, and the governor himself, I think, I unwisely made the decision during the Republican primary to move pretty far right. You know, uh, he took an awful lot of positions, which I think came back to haunt him in the general election, whether it was immigration, whether it was issues around uh, women's uh, reproductive rights, whether it was around Planned Parenthood, uh, immigration. I mean, all these things were things that um, he made the determination in the primary he was going to stake out a position uh, pretty far to the right. And as we moved into the general election, those what I would call substantive issue positions were really the, a lot of the focus of, of what we were able to communicate and talk about in the campaign. And, and I guess i just make one, one further point. Sorry to go on so long. No, this is polyoptics. We <laughs> delve deeply into process. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, obviously, this is all in the context of what was an economic campaign. There were two very, very different views about where this country ought to go. And most of that centered around uh, economics in the in the case of the president, uh, a deeply held belief that you needed to rebuild the middle class. We needed to build from the middle out and uh, do the kinds of things that strengthen the middle class in terms of investments and education and job training, um, that those kinds of things really make a difference and that we all are stronger if we do that. And Governor Romney, I think, uh, honestly had a different view that if you gave more tax breaks to those at the top, if you reduced regulation on Wall Street, that ultimately the benefits that would accrue to the wealthy would move down uh, to the rest of us. And um, that that was a pretty good debate, and we had it in lots of different ways. And uh, I think that was the sort of at the center of the election. And, and finally, and we can talk about this as we move further into the show, you know, is why today when the Republicans refuse in, in Congress to even consider... Uh, closing some of these tax loopholes, you kind of wonder whether they were watching the last election at right. all. So that sounds fine on radio, Jim Margolis, but translating it into the visual and into 30 seconds is where your particular brand of artistry and then the science of media buying to get into people's living rooms and have them understand this message comes in. I'd like to sort of uh, go way back uh, to a campaign that you did not work on, neither did I, but 1984, Ronald Reagan and one of the great predecessors of, of your work, Hal Reine. There you go. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates and inflation down, more people are buying new homes and our new families can have confidence in the future. America today is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? It's a 
a great where, ad. Where were you in 1984 and, and looking at Riney's work and thinking about the way Reagan was running for re-election? I'm embarrassed to tell you, Josh. You know, I mean, I'm trying on radio to not look so old, but um, here you go. I was working in the 1984 campaign. I was a young guy working on the media side for Mondale. And, and, and here's the really sad part of the story. You'll, you'll recall that there was a whole video that was done this morning in American video, morning in America video. For the convention. Uh, exactly. And I remember sitting at the, uh, at the campaign headquarters, um, at, at the Mondale headquarters up on Wisconsin Avenue in Glover Park. And we watched the, the Reagan video, the morning in America video, and all of us were sitting around the table, and I glanced, and there were three people with tears yeah. in their eyes, all right? So here you were at Mondale headquarters, and, and we decided, you know, the good news is we were ahead 60-40. The bad news is that was in Mondale headquarters that day. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> I mean, what was what was Mondale able to put up in retort? Did you look at, I mean, this is about music. This is about lighting. This is about editing. Yeah. Were you as, could you have been as creative in creating an opposite message? Well, you know, it's hard to go back to 1984 and figure it out. I, I, I like to think that, you know, you take a hard look at what are the conditions you're operating in and, and what are the attitudes. Let's bring it forward instead. And, you know, we, we opened with a pretty important spot uh, this year that I think had a lot of emotional content to it, but it, it has to connect with what people's reality is. So I have it. Let's hear it. 2008, an economic meltdown. Worst financial collapse since the Great Depression. 4.4 million jobs lost. American workers were laid off in numbers not seen in over three decades. America's economy spiraling down. The biggest point drop that has ever been seen in a day. All before this president took the oath. So help me God. Some said our best days were behind us, but not him. Don't bet against the American worker. He believed in us, fought for us. And today, our auto industry is back, firing on all cylinders. Our greatest enemy brought to justice by our greatest heroes. Our troops are home from Iraq. Instead of losing jobs, we're creating them. Over 4.2 million so far. We're not there yet. It's still too hard for too many. But we're coming back because America's greatness comes from a strong middle class. Because you don't quit, and neither does he. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. You're good, Josh. You know, we didn't do any planning in advance, and you were ready with the right spot. Congratulations. <laughs> Let's go through the process of making this one piece by piece. Well, you know, the beginning of this campaign, I would say that there were three or four important things that we needed to do over the, the course of the campaign. We needed to set context. A lot of people had forgotten how bad things were. I mean, and that's, that may be hard to believe, but, you know, we were losing 750,000 jobs a month the month that he was sworn into office and he raised his hand. And um, and a lot of people had sort of forgotten. And, and admittedly, a year or two, a year and a half ago, when we, when we were creating 100,000 jobs a month or 80,000 jobs a month, it's not what you would have liked, but it sure beats losing 750,000 jobs a month. So reminding people of what he faced, the context was very important, and that was what you heard at the beginning of that spot. Second, you wanted to demonstrate progress, that we're moving forward, that we are actually um, uh, moving ahead in a number of different places, in a number of different ways, but um, you don't want to overshoot the runway because people were feeling still, and I think continue today, to feel the strain and stress of an economy that isn't where we'd all like it to be. So the notion of moving forward, but not 
sort of suggesting that we're, we've gotten there and we're beating our chest in victory. That was a crucial component of this. And then you heard in that spot how he talked a lot about, and this is at the core of who he is, it was a belief in us. It was a belief in our ability to, his confidence in us and auto workers to, to bring back the auto industry if they were given chance, that there was still a recognition that for too many, it's still too hard. Uh, we weren't, again, uh, trying to oversell what had been accomplished, but that we were on the right path. And I think storytelling and having a narrative arc, and that isn't just about within an ad, but it's over the course of a campaign, is really, really important. And it's, it's something that we spent a lot of time trying to get right. So we had the premiere last week of Mad Men, uh, the sixth season, and we followed the exploits of Don Draper over six years. It, what you don't talk, what, what a Jim Margolis does not talk about on many other shows, but what I'd like you to do here is actually talk about the selling process to your client, the president, of what must begin with a script, but is also going to need a voice, a narrative voice, and also will see you probably in an avid suite for hours upon mm -hmm. hours pulling together uh, an enormous amount of quick cut footage, much different from Hal Reine with the kids raising the flag up the flagpole. How does it go from, okay, you're, you're coming to the residence or to the Obama campaign office and here, Mr. President, is going to be our first ad for the campaign. Yeah, let, let me also just take a quick opportunity to say we had an amazing team. There was what we call the Obama media team. We brought together uh, from a whole series of different firms, uh, I think some of the best folks in the business, and unfortunately people that I have to compete against in all my other campaign activities. Um, and that team was seamless and never had, you know, a moment where you had to worry about somebody trying to take credit for something. It, it, it was really incredible. So, you know, let, let me uh, make sure I'm not suggesting that all this was done uh, by Jim Margolis. And but the you're Don Draper, so be a proxy for... Uh... All right. So, you know, part of the process is, is making sure that you have a clarity about what it is that you're trying to communicate. I believe in storytelling. I believe that you need to have emotion. I believe that you have to make things understandable and more important than anything else, you have to have authenticity. I think people smell a lot of, maybe literally, a lot of political as they, they can smell it when, when it feels like they're being played with and you're not shooting straight with them. And one of the biggest advantages that we had in this campaign was the president himself. Um, when our most effective ads, despite the fact that they might not have been, you know, the highest in, in, in production values, was when he sat down and he looked people in the eye on television. We did a lot, a lot of longer format ads with the president, two-minute ads, one-minute ads. Um, and when he was speaking directly to the public, those were the most effective ads we had. So it starts with a clear understanding about what it is you're trying to communicate that ought to fit into the overall strategic arc of the campaign. Once you go through that process, you're, you know, obviously we spend time in doing research and sort of trying to understand what are the issues that are going to be most important to those uh, swing voters. And, and then it's through a script writing process. It is hours and overnights in, uh, in those small avid suites, often three or four running at a time, because we would look at maybe five different ads before we put one up, trying to see which we thought uh, sort of touched it, touched the issue uh, in the right way. President always uh, reviewed every ad that went up, 
I will tell you that there were times that he thought we went too far and uh, would say, whoa, this isn't in keeping with uh, with how I think we ought to be communicating in politics. And So Fred Davis wasn't on your team? <laughs> Fred Davis was on the other side. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, well, I will just say that the president was a pretty good break on us. We didn't have anybody uh, that we had to worry about getting, you know, if he if it didn't get past him, it didn't get past him, that was the end of it. So um, in terms of the actual production, I, I've heard that narrator's voice many times. I think I've heard some female narrators. Where, where did you find your talent, and did you try and create a narrative voice beyond the president's voice in some of these yeah. spots? We, we, um, we tended to use um, one person, a, a guy by the name of Nick Schlotsky out of uh, California, who did a lot of our voiceover. Um, and we, he is a tremendously talented, very versatile um, voiceover. And not only that, he shares <laughs> he shares the uh, the perspective, which which helps. So, you know, Nick would uh, sit in his studio in his in his basement, I think, probably um, in his pajamas at he's on what the a west job. coast. Uh, with a voice like that, um, you know, he can make a pretty good living. Um, with us calling him up and over uh, uh, a line, you know, a dedicated line, we would do the narration. And the president, again, uh, did a lot of the narration, uh, even narration, not just two-camera work. And then, obviously, we, we used a lot of different people over the course of time, a lot of women. Um, we had Spanish-language television. We had youth uh, television directed at youth, segmenting different audiences. We would use younger voiceover talent for that. Um, you know, but more than anything, again, I think our strongest our strongest pitch was often uh, using real people and real voices. And um, you can't do that in every ad, but I think those are often the most effective. I want to hear one ad of a voiceover that I think most of us uh, dedicated moviegoers will recognize. Let's hear another Margolis ad for President Obama. Every president inherits challenges. Few have faced so many. Four years later, our enemies have been brought to justice. Our heroes are coming home. Assembly lines are humming again. There are still challenges to meet. Children to educate, a middle class to rebuild. But the last thing we should do is turn back now. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. Jim Margolis, the strategy of using Morgan Freeman and, and other auteurs like Davis Guggenheim in some of your work? Yeah. I mean, he's just amazing, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, look, you know, think about it. This was a spot that went up at the very end of the campaign. Uh, it's interesting because it's, it's similar to the one we heard at the front, but actually by the time we got to the end of the campaign, just in content, and I'll come back to Morgan in a second, um, there was more receptivity to this notion that we were making progress by October, late October, than there was in early May when that first spot ran. And so that whole notion that we are moving forward as a country, people were feeling it more and more. <clears throat> and and so even in the content there, uh, you saw consistency between what we were talking about at the beginning of the of the paid media effort and what you heard in the final week of the campaign media effort. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But the thing about Freeman is if, if you can imagine those final days and the amount of advertising that is crushing the poor people of Cleveland, oh, Ohio, right? It's just astounding, and it's like nothing that's ever been done before. Uh, Romney and his allies spent about $650 million 
Obama and the people supporting us in the uh, IEs, uh, the independent expenditure campaigns, spent about $450 million. And There's not enough inventory to buy. It, well, and, and so people are being bombarded. So part of what you're trying to figure out is how do we cut through? How do we make it a little different? And having a voice, which all of a sudden people sort of turn their head and go, whoa, Morgan Freeman. I know that voice that adds both credibility, helps you break through a little bit, and I think at the same time offers a little bit of reassurance. And he did all that for us. And and we had an awful lot of help from an awful lot of people along the way that sort of volunteered their time. Now, another great task of the media team of the Obama re-election campaign is not only to help define your candidate, but to to define your opponent. And much has been made of several of the ads that went up. I want to hear one, but talk about another. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. It started like this. I speak the language of business. I know how jobs are created. But it ended like this. One of the worst economic records in the country. When Mitt Romney was governor, Massachusetts lost 40,000 manufacturing jobs, a rate twice the national average, and fell to 47th in job creation fourth from the bottom. Instead of hiring workers from his own state, Romney outsourced call center jobs to India. He cut taxes for millionaires like himself while raising them on the middle class and left the state 2.6 billion deeper in debt. So now, when Mitt Romney talks about what he'd do as president, I know what it takes to create jobs. Remember, we've heard it all before. I know how jobs are created. Romney Economics. It didn't work then, and it won't work now. Jim Margolis, I think that sounds like Nick's voice again, but the uh, the seminal uh, negative piece uh, that was created against the Romney campaign in the summer of 2012, I think it premiered in June, was using Governor Romney's voice himself mm-hmm. singing uh, God Bless America, which as an audio cue, thinking about Morgan Freeman, you're sitting at your grabbing for another potato chip uh, from the from the Ottoman and oh my god I'm listening to Mitt Romney sing in my living room and the graphics scroll across the screen tell us about the inception of that ad and its impact I'm glad you asked um, I think it was actually America the Beautiful right um, exactly. the um, it's interesting uh, the the ad and again the the people in these in these 12 13 14 battleground states are all having flashbacks right now um, to no 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 let's not start the political <laughs> campaign again but uh, we'll, we'll we'll get through it um, the the America the beautiful ad uh, was an interesting one and I'll, I'll I'll take you a little bit behind the curtain uh, we were on a call in the spring of uh, 2011 right when he actually was uh, at one of these events, and and he frequently, Governor Romney would would sing "America the Beautiful" at at his different campaign events. And um, actually, part of our Obama media team, Rich Davis and uh, David Dixon, um, we were on our, our our regular, you know, every couple day media call, and they said, you know, there's there's something to this. I mean, here he is singing "America the Beautiful," and. He's got his own investments overseas in Swiss bank accounts and in the Cayman Islands. There's been, you know, a pretty significant amount of offshoring of jobs from the companies that he acquired at Bain and then moved a number of the jobs overseas. There, This is dissonant. There's something wrong here between that picture of Romney and, um, 
and and what what actually he has done in much of his business career. And we also, you know, kind of nodded our head and said, yeah, this isn't really the right time. It's February of 2011, for God's sakes. Um, but maybe we get back to that. And and as we got into the heat of the campaign and as we got to a point where there really was a lot of conversation about Governor Romney's record as, as governor and as a CEO, it all of a sudden occurred to us, you know what, um, that really was a great point that Dixon and Davis made, and then ultimately that spot was put together by AKPD and John Del Cicado, another member of the team. Um, I wish I had done it. They did it. Um, and it was interesting. We really tested that ad. We were nervous that uh, people would think that we were being unfair. That that authenticity thing I was talking about earlier, uh, that we wouldn't have a problem with, but did it seem too personal? And in fact, as, as we, we tested it and talked to people, they were the ones who convinced us to put it on the air. They said, look, you know, there really is a disconnect between this embrace of America and all the things that you, you feel when you hear that song and a number of the activities that, that he's engaged in. And, and that's totally fair. And so more than usual did we really try to get a good beat on that so that we didn't have people feeling like we were being unfair. So, Jim Margolis, you have all of this uh, creative work, both the positive definitional pieces uh, supporting your candidate and the negative comparison pieces defining uh, your opponent. And as you said, though, in the key counties in Ohio, Florida, Virginia, uh, Colorado, there's barely enough ad inventory to effectively put this on. Can you again pull us pull back the curtain a little bit for listeners and tell us about the optimizer and the different ways in mm. which media was bought in 2012 yeah well first of all you know i mean there does come a point of diminishing return and and uh, there was a there were there were moments where we would look at just the total amount of throw weight that was taking place out there within individual markets and say you know what let's get off and you know we 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 don't need to uh continue to add time. We would obviously stay on, but um, we aren't going to add time. Um, but a campaign, if it's done right, is an integrated campaign. And it's not just television, it's radio, it's, uh, it, I should say, you know, yep. uh, it's online and increasingly um, those things are important. And for us within the within the Obama campaign, that personal door-to-door contact is really important. And if you can begin to put those pieces together, you can do things that are pretty impressive. And I will give you an example through analytics. Um, you know, traditionally, we would use the rating services that <clears throat> most of your listeners are going to be familiar with that help us understand who's watching or listening to certain programs. And that would be a big help in determining where we ought to place our particular spots. If we're looking for women, what are they watching and so on. But what we were able to do in, in the Obama campaign that sort of took it three or four steps further was to essentially create a database that would include people's registration, which is public, and their voter history, what happened when our field organizer knocked on their door, what were the issues that they were most concerned about, what happened when the phone call took place to those folks, what kind of responses did we get, and you built data. And that data was then used to more precisely target our advertising to really figure out who it was that were the persuadable voters and what were they watching 
and who were our get-out-the-vote targets and what were they watching, and who were the Republicans who we just wanted to hang a do-not-disturb sign on and not motivate them any more than we had to um, and try to stay away from them. And, um, you know, there are a whole series of things that are beginning to emerge. Uh, we can talk about them if you want in terms of how you how, what the next steps are. Absolutely. I mean, Mrs. Polyoptics and I uh, barely watch uh, any TV show <laughs> without DVRing or time shifting. So how do you reach me uh, in future campaigns? Or is the voter in Ohio or Florida different because they're watching reruns of Gilligan's Island and, and F Troop? Yeah, well, let me give you two examples quickly of 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 kind of where things are going to get better about some of the targeting. Uh, we went and and worked out an arrangement with a company called Rent Track, that you know that set top box that most of you have on on top of your television set. Um, it's actually measuring second by second what you do on that television, what you're watching, when you change, whether you click off of an ad, and so on. And uh, by taking that data file that I was just talking about that really gives a good picture of um, what you look like and who you are and uh, what we know about you uh, appropriately, and that data from the set-top box, and then put that behind a curtain. Let me make very clear. We don't know, and privacy is protected through you know using third-party vendors, so we don't know actually what Josh is watching at 2 o'clock in the morning. But we know what people Thank exactly, God. exactly, exactly like Josh are watching, and Josh is a persuasion target. And we now realize that there is this relatively small group of people, but important people who are undecided voters, who happen to be watching TV land at 2 o'clock. Gilligan's Island reruns or uh, Gomer Pyle. <laughs> and Two great shows. And there you go. And so where a couple of years ago we would not have bought that programming because we wouldn't have been able to see enough and understand enough whether those folks were really targets for us by matching up all that data that's being collected um, from what's happening at the doors and so on. We are able to go after smaller groups of voters and talk to them about more of the issues that are particular concern to them. So that's what the optimizer does. Now, let me tell you where I think it's going. Um, as time goes on, there's a thing called addressability. And addressability one day, and it's already here in a really small way, will drop ads into your set-top box overnight, and then they will be fed into a commercial break when they've been, uh, where they've been assigned. And so let's go back to the same example I just had a moment ago, and you've got a persuadable voter who lives next door to a get-out-the-vote already Obama supporter who lives next door to that Republican. Well, we will, and we are at the beginning of a stage where adver advertisers could drop a persuasion ad into the exact break next say in you know it's in yep. ESPN and they drop that ad there for persuasion and next door in that exact same break you could be dropping a get out the vote ad for that Obama supporter and in the next household in that exact break on the same channel you're going to not send anything because they're against you and that's a waste of money that addressability addressing an ad to a specific audience 
um, we were able to do with just about a million dollars out of the $450 million that we spent. But I think it's really interesting. If you think about commercial advertisers, let's say you're an insurance company and you want to sell renter's insurance, why buy homeowners? And if you could address right. through, you know, all of a sudden you're just sending a renter's ad to renters. And is there any solution against uh, DVRing or phase shifting that I, that I don't really want to watch right. any ad and I'm trying my best to avoid it? Well, I don't know whether there's any, you know, a, a, a foolproof solution. I guess what I would say is this. Video is video. And we need to not think about it as TV and online and right. smartphones and tablets. We need to think about content and video and communications. And so if we're able to communicate better with Josh, you know, on the basis of where you, uh, where you go when you're online, great. If we can do it with pre-roll before uh, you check uh, the news in the morning, great. If you're getting it when you watch television uh, at night with those Gomer Pyle reruns, terrific. Um, but it's going to be all of those kinds of things that are about the number of impressions that we are able to deliver to people and messages that we're able to deliver to people and not think about it in such a segregated way. And at the end of the day, I think you as the storyteller would probably agree it comes down to the quality of the content and the message that you're delivering. And I want to end our conversation just hearing about a different campaign that you did, uh, one that features a voice going back to 1984 for the uh, candidate from Virginia, Jim Webb. One man who sat where you do now is another member of our administration, Assistant Secretary of Defense James Webb, the most decorated member of his class. James Gallantry is a Marine officer in Vietnam one in the Navy Cross and other decorations. Soldier, scholar, leader. Now Jim Webb is running for Senate. I'm Jim Webb and I approve this message because it's time we got our country back on track. Jim Margolis, was it hard to get Jim Webb to use Ronald Reagan as a validator? No, I mean, I think, look, again, you're trying to figure out ways to capture people's attention. And uh, and particularly in a state like Virginia, which has a pretty strong military history and um, presence, here is a Democrat um, who who is running for the seat that year, and and what better validator than Ronald Reagan to sort of say this guy is for real, and you can have some confidence in him. Again, for our Democrats, I don't think it 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 hurt us, and for a lot of independent and Republican voters. Um, it was an opportunity to say, hmm, maybe I ought to give this guy a look. And that's really what you're trying to do. Give me a look. Well, from Morning in America 1984 to 2016 and a campaign to come that I'm sure will include the creative uh, and ad-targeting work of Jim Margolis, I hope addressability uh, continues to make its way into our set-top boxes and that hopefully I'll only see the ads that are truly relevant to me. Jim, thanks so much for spending some time with us on Polyoptics today. Thank you, Josh. We're going to try to have an ad that starts with, Hey, Josh, wake up. That would work. <laughs> Thank you much. Take care. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we have an incredible lineup today, including uh, my old friend Ron Klain, the chief of staff to our last two Democratic vice presidents, Al Gore and Joe Biden, and now is the general counsel of Revolution and the president of Case Holdings, uh, working with Steve Case up the street, finally out of government, 
uh, after all these years. Ron, welcome to Polyoptics. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So first, I just want to touch a little bit on uh, news this week because I think it's close to a lot of the work that you've done uh, over the course of your long career in Washington, and that was the gun, the deal on uh, enhanced background checks that was announced on Thursday between uh, Senators Manchin and Toomey of West Virginia and Pennsylvania, respectively. Ron, it might be sort of polite to applaud this show of bipartisanship, and yet uh, as we think back to Newtown and what perpetrated that violence, and is it is it should we be fully applauding this deal or thinking that it doesn't go very far? Well, I think uh, some of both. That is, I don't think it's just about applauding a show of partisan bipartisanship for the sake of uh, being a cheerleader. I do think that that what the two senators have agreed on is a significant step. It will make America safer and will save lives. And I think that's the bottom line. Does it go as far as the president and the vice president wanted? Absolutely not. Is it a shame that it looks like uh, efforts to control assault weapons or regulate magazine size, um, some of the things that would more directly address the tragedy in Newtown? Uh, Does it look like those things are in trouble on Capitol Hill? Unfortunately, it does. But um, you know, every step in the right direction is a step in the right direction, and this is a step in the right direction. I think you and I were both in the White House when the uh, assault weapons ban went through in the 1990s. What was the difference in the ability to get legislation through Congress then versus today? Well, I mean, I think, uh, Josh, I think it's two things. I mean, one, uh, the filibuster is more routinely used now than it was back then. Uh, But I think there's something else to it. Um, I think the nation's attitudes on gun control uh, probably have changed since then. I think that, uh, unfortunately, the National Rifle Association has been very effective in shaping public opinion over the 20 years since then. And uh, I think you're starting to see, after this tragedy, uh, a comeback of of, uh, of the dialogue in the opposite direction, uh, a rise of more common sense thinking about these issues. Uh, But um, people who want to uh, have common sense restrictions on uh, on the availability of certain kinds of weapons like assault weapons, uh, you know, they're they're behind in terms of making that argument to the public. They're catching up. Uh, they've been uh, pressing the case the past few months, but uh, you know, in the 20 years since 1994, when the assault weapon ban was enacted and signed into law by President Clinton, uh, the 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 the, uh, the 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 NRA and its allies have had uh, more effective uh, co- arguments with the public. So, assuming that you were still uh, the chief of staff to the vice president of the United States, thinking about the strategy that the White House has followed, at least to get to this point that we are at this week with the uh, agreement on um, enhanced background checks, what is the thinking that goes into deciding after Newtown that Vice President Joe Biden will be the the lead player in hearing out various sides, uh, being more public face, and taking such an active role in trying to get where we are? Well, I think that uh, you start with the fact that uh, Vice President Biden back uh, when he was Senator Biden, was chairman of the Judiciary Committee and was the floor manager when the Senate uh, passed the assault open ban the first time in 1990 um, and uh, and played a critical role as uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee when uh, the uh, Senate passed, ultimately the Congress passed and President Clinton signed into law uh, the gun control measures back in 1994. He also has very talented staff in this regard. Bruce Reed, who is his chief of staff now, was uh, actually on point for President Clinton right. 
back when this legislation was passed. And Cynthia Hogan, who uh, is uh, Vice President Biden's counsel now, was chief counsel of the Judiciary Committee back in 1994 uh, when the legislation was passed. So, uh, you know, Vice President Biden has a lot of experience in this area. He has a very talented team helping him on these issues. And I think when you put that all together, uh, it's no surprise that President Obama asked him to take on this assignment. You've mentioned Bruce and Cynthia and the other people who had who have such substantive uh, understanding of this, and and yet in your role as a chief of staff, either to Vice President Gore or to Vice President Biden, so much of the discussion uh, about what to do in response to any issue that the White House needs to respond on, from the chief of staff's seat down to my seat as an advance man, is what are we going to do publicly? And what is the event going to look like? And what are the words that we're going to prepare for remarks or talking points? Talk about your role over the years as the person who either who had to look at guys like me who came up with crazy ideas or uh, or things that were going to sort of push the envelope on the visual message that you were sending in and how you needed to be a regulator of what could go and what couldn't. Well, it's a great question, Josh. And I think one thing that's changed since the Clinton era, and you mentioned this on this program from time to time, is how many more tools there are uh, in the in the tool shed for someone who does that kind of work in the White House. Um, you know, back when the Clinton years, basically the whole building was built around the idea of what image you'd put on the nightly network news show right. that night, and that was the whole that was the whole game, beginning uh, and end, in terms of trying to connect with the American people about what the president or vice president was trying to say. Now there are thousands and thousands of, of outlets, literally a plethora of ways in which to communicate. And that includes not just the move from the dominance of networks to the inclusion of cable, but obviously social media, Twitter. The White House uses its Flickr feed as a very effective way of connecting with people Absolutely. through images. And so, you know, I think it's that whole diverse array of tools is now are now part of the, part of the uh, the effort to communicate on these issues. And so, I think. Um, you know, it isn't just when people like Dan Pfeiffer, Jen Palmieri, and the other folks in the White House, and then Vice President Biden's staff, uh, Shayla Murray, who's the communications director, think about these issues. They're, they are painting with with a with a with a much more um, a nuanced and complex palette than we had back uh, 20 years ago, and using all those tools. And so uh, today, uh, Vice President Biden, uh, in an appearance that was actually taped yesterday, was on Morning Joe having a conversation with four different people with different points of view on gun-related issues. Uh, you know, they've been they've been tweeting about the various steps along the way, posting things on the Facebook page. They have a regular program now uh, called Being Biden, where they post something, a little video each week about what the vice president's doing on the White House web webpage. And all those tools, I mean, I think one thing that's been very impressive since uh, the tragedy at Newtown is the White House has used every one of these resources at its disposal to try to advance the president and vice president's agenda to have some common sense uh, gun measures passed after that tragedy. I did watch uh, the vice president of Morning Joe this week and uh, did remark to Mrs. Polyoptics that I was wondering if they were cutting live to a White House event because it seemed to play so well into White House messaging. And, and you know, that's where the line gets a little blurry between uh, news organizations that are supposed to be reporting on the White House and, and the White House events and message machine of which I was a part. But on the subject of social media, Ron Klain, I think you are probably the most prolific 
personal practicer of social media of any former White House chief of staff. Would that probably be accurate? Well, I wouldn't want to uh, try to get in the comparative game here, but I do enjoy social media, both in terms of uh, promoting our business activities at Revolution, some of my personal interests in politics and civic matters, and uh, even connecting with family and friends. And I think one great thing about social media, having nothing to do with polyoptics, but having something to do with politics is, over the course of my 30 years in politics, I have made friends and colleagues in campaigns all over the country, and you lose touch with those people. They move on. They move on to other things. And Facebook has been a fantastic way to renew some of those friendships, keep up with folks from the, the Clinton years, the Gore campaign, other campaigns I worked on before that, who would be almost impossible to stay connected with. So, you know, aside from all the polyoptics benefits of social media, there's just a personal enjoyment from uh, keeping up with all those uh, friends and colleagues you make through politics. But it also shows what a narrative and creative thinker you are. I was struck by something that you posted on Facebook this week, um, a shot at the uh, bin probably at the Klain household that shows all the footballs and soccer balls and baseballs and the fresh pump, and you said it was a sure sign of spring. It Well, fortunately, uh, we finally do have some warm weather here in Washington. Spring is back. I suppose it's one... Uh, one, one sign of climate change, that our climate's so out of control that it's snowing one day and 90 degrees the next day. But, uh, but spring is back here in Washington, and the, the balls are in the ball bin, and it's ready for the, ready for the Klain kids to kick the balls over the fences to the neighbor's yards. D- did you take that shot? I did take that shot. And then did you think, i got to share this because it's such a, it, uh, it, it goes back to maybe your own youth in Indianapolis? It does go back to my own youth, and also, uh, you know, uh, truth be told, I, I posted on there, so my older son, who is a freshman in college, uh, when he logged on to Facebook, he would see it and hopefully think warmly about coming home to Washington this summer. Another sure sign of spring uh, on Sunday, April 14th, the premiere of season two of the exploits of Vice President Selena Meyer, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus on Veep on HBO. Let's hear a little bit from uh, last season. How are you? I see you. I see you. I need you all to make me have not said that. I need you to have make me unsaid it. Okay, kittens, time to get drowned. You said you had it covered. It's your job to know that if I say I have it covered, I don't have it covered, and you cover me. That door should be half its height so that people can only approach me in my office on their knees. How you feeling? Well, I'm a political leper and I'm an emotional time bomb. So here's an idea. Let's put me on stage. Ron Klain, you've been a little bit critical in the past of the way uh, the vice president's chief of staff in uh, Veep uh, conducts her her role and uh, manages her group. Um, Care to elaborate? Well, I did uh, do a piece for uh, GQ last year about uh, Amy's travails as a fairly ineffective vice presidential chief of staff. But I have to say recently, uh, through a friend of a friend, I had a chance to go up and watch them uh, film part of the second season of Veep. It's been a day on set and spent some time talking to the actors. And uh, um, and, and what, I, what I'll say is I think people should expect a much more competent, engaged, powerful vice president in the second <laughs> season of Veep. Uh, they, they've, they've got, uh, seem to have their act together in the Veep's office now. And uh, and without giving away anything that I know... Spoiler alert. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, what I will say is that uh, at some point in time this season, the president definitely does call and uh, you're going to see a much more important and impactful Selena this season. Were you called in to consult on how to make the vice president a more effective player on V? No, it was strictly a social visit, and uh, it was, but it was great to see it. It's a great, great cast and uh, very talented team that, that uh, produces and, 
and uh, puts the show together. Eric Lesser, who formerly worked in the Obama White House, is one of the consultants and advisors to the program and uh, does a great job helping them out with the politics of the whole thing. As a representative of the vice presidential community of ex-staffers, is there a a sense of... uh, reward that finally after West Wing and so many other shows that focused on the Oval Office that you are back into the uh, Eisenhower Executive Office building and the offices of the Vice President and showing the importance of this role to our national conversation? Well, I'm not sure that's really the purpose of uh, the show Veep. It's I think it's more of an entertaining uh, program, but, but uh, you know, hopefully there's some awareness that's raised by the thing. They have done a fantastic job, spectacular job of building a set that looks exactly like the vice presidential suite in the OEOB, and um, and so there there is uh, if 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 the way Selena acts is not necessarily realistic for the way a real vice president acts, where she works is quite realistic, and uh, it does give people a little bit of an inside look that way. Coming into uh, the White House in 2009, what was the thinking about the way Vice President Biden needed to uh, conduct his role, comport himself, uh, and serve in contrast to his predecessor? Well, I think Vice President Biden publicly spoke about the fact that he thought that Vice President Cheney, who certainly uh, you know liked personally and had known for a long time, had really overstepped the role of the vice presidency and uh, had had gone too far. You know, it was interesting because for most of our country's history, the vice presidency has been uh, disregarded. Uh, you know, famously said not to be worth a warm bucket of something, and. Um, and, you know, the whole issue has been, could the vice president be relevant? Could the vice president matter? Could, he, could uh, his role be impactful uh, in our system? And, and you know, that, 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 that question started to get answered in an affirmative way with Vice President Mondale. Really, was the first modern and transformative vice president. Vice President Gore, I think, took things to the next step. Uh, probably the most impactful vice president of the time. Uh, and then Vice President Cheney probably went too far and uh, exercise the kind of influence that's probably not appropriate for a vice president to act. Vice President Biden was very aware of that. Before he got sworn in, he met with every single living uh, ex-vice president, both Democrats and Republicans, and got their thoughts and ideas about the job and the role, and you know brought that to the role and wanted to make sure that he had an important role. Uh, most important thing to him was being the last person in the room, being a, a trusted and important advisor to President Obama. It has worked out that way, but also a role that uh, fit properly under our constitutional system uh, and a role that was properly constrained in our constitutional system. And I think what's been great about the past uh, five years, for four plus years of, of Vice President Biden doing the job, is he's really hit that that proper ground. There's no question that he is one of the most important and influential people in the Obama administration. And what he's done as vice president has been tre- tremendous and really made a big difference. But also, I think he has restored the vice presidency to its proper constitutional place. And a lot of the issues and abuses that happened under Vice President Cheney have been brought back under control. And a lot of that certainly is credit to his staff and in particular his chief of staff, a chief of staff who took leave of Vice President Biden after working with him for such a long time uh, to now work with Steve Case at Revolution. Certainly for a person who kind of keeps his eye on uh people's uh, personalities either getting more prominent or less prominent in the public eye. I grew up or or came of age certainly in the uh, time of AOL and the merger with uh, AOL Time Warner. Case uh, certainly had taken a back seat for many years, but I would even say over the past few months, Ron Klain, that Steve is more prominent than he's been in years. What's behind that? Well, I think that um, 
you know, these things have a certain cycle to them, I suppose, Josh. But Steve's also made an effort to really step up his public profile around issues of concern to entrepreneurs and helping startups uh, really grow and get the attention and focus they deserve in our country. Uh, Steve's fond of saying uh, almost all the net new jobs we've created in our country in the past 40 years have come from uh, startups and high-growth enterprises and these these young businesses that really grow quite quickly. And Steve uh, was the iconic leader of one of those, an AOL, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and then now for the past few years at Revolution has been an investor uh, and backed a number of these entrepreneurs as they've started companies, started great companies, grown great companies. Uh, and now he's trying to take that in the public policy arena too and speak out on behalf of the kinds of policies that will make it easier for people to start and grow businesses in our country. President Obama put him on his jobs council. He chaired the high growth enterprises subcommittee of that. Um, and Steve also chairs a public-private partnership called the Startup America Partnership, which tries to bring together all kinds of resources to help people who are looking to start businesses and create businesses. And, uh, you know, I think that advocacy has has made him more visible, more public. Also, some of the companies he's invested in Revolution have been very successful. That's added to his uh, pr- profile. Uh, when you put it all together, I think people are seeing a lot more of Steve than they were in the recent past. We're talking with Ron Klain, uh, General Counsel of Revolution, former Chief of Staff to Vice President Biden and Vice President Gore. Noted this week, uh, Ron, that uh, in addition to the work that Steve has been doing, Mark Zuckerberg and other uh, heads of entrepreneur what, what have been entrepreneurial startups now driving so much of the tech economy have uh, announced FWD.US. Is, is this the uh, tech industry's decision to say, look, if we're going to make it in the United States, we have to have changes to the way our immigration works and the way other laws work that allow companies like ours to flourish? Well, you know, I wouldn't purport to speak for others in the industry, but what I can say for ourselves at Revolution um, is that we definitely believe quite strongly that we need the right kind of policies to continue to be um, the world's leader in innovation and the world's leader in entrepreneurship. You know, entrepreneurship has kind of been a uniquely American thing uh, we are seen, even among other capitalist and, and Western nations, uh, as a real leader in a place where people can start businesses, grow businesses, where a lot of new business ideas come from. But in recent years, uh, other countries have caught on to that and really have challenged that and are, are really challenging our leadership in that area. Uh, Canada does a great job now of trying to help startups. And even China really is putting an emphasis on this. And so we need the right policies to uh, maintain our lead, our global leadership in that. And that starts right now, particularly with what's going on in Washington around the issue of immigration reform. Uh, you know, every year we graduate thousands and thousands of brilliant young people who are here, who are learning in our schools, and yet don't have the visas to stay. And so they leave our country and they go start businesses elsewhere. And those are jobs that could be uh, created here in America. And so uh, from allowing those young people to stay in our country and start businesses, having people come to our country to start businesses. You know, all these things are part of the ecosystem that really promotes entrepreneurship and will promote economic growth. Another milestone this week, Ron Klain, uh, you're talking to him on Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124, was the 45th anniversary of the slaying of Dr. Martin Luther King. You reposted a piece that you did for the New York Times, I think, in 2008 of your personal experience with uh, Robert Kennedy when he came to Indianapolis 
to announce Dr. King's death. I remember uh, for another anniversary being there with President Clinton, but I want to hear a little bit of RFK from 1968. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Ron, what was your reaction to to that moment, and why did it hit you so personally? Well, about a month before that, uh, Robert uh, F. Kennedy had been in Indianapolis um, campaigning. The Indiana primary that year was a really critical primary in the presidential primary process in 1968. And a person like yourself, Josh, an advanced person, was looking for a place to do an event. And the event they wanted to do was small business people having a mini town hall, a little exchange with uh, Bobby Kennedy. So I didn't invent that idea? You did not invent oh, that idea. Josh actually okay. goes back at least to the 1968 campaign. And, you know, through the fortuities that this process entails, they stumbled upon my father's plumbing supply house in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana, and decided to have this event uh, at his plumbing supply house. My dad hadn't been active in politics. Uh, it was just kind of the right, as as you know from doing this, the right location, the right place, right right venue, right optics to hold this event. And so they held this event there, and I met Bobby Kennedy about a month uh, before uh, that famous speech in Indianapolis in April. I met him in March, my father's business. You were how old? I was seven years old at the time, and it changed my life. I met him and, and knew that uh, politics was something I wanted to do and and just was so impressed by him and the aura around him and, and, and everything. And then a month later, on that horrible night when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Kennedy was in town for an unrelated campaign event, uh, as you heard on that tape, uh, went into the inner city in Indianapolis uh, to uh, what uh, to the place where you did bring President Clinton uh, on uh, uh, in the 1990s, went, went to a playground there, uh, uh, was advised not to do it, it was advised to be too dangerous, was advised that the crowd didn't know about King's death, was advised that didn't know they didn't know how the crowd would react, couldn't provide the security, and he went forward anyway. He made that announcement, gave us fantastically amazing off-the-cuff speech. Some words from that speech uh, that he gave that night are engraved on his grave at, uh, uh, at Arlington Cemetery. And, uh, and that night, there were riots all over the country, uh, businesses burned all over the country, but not in Indianapolis. Kennedy's words uh, healed the community, uh, prevented violence from breaking out in the community. My father's business was an inner-city business. Uh, his business was, was saved. It was one of the businesses that did not burn in America that night uh, because of what Bobby Kennedy said in Indianapolis that night. And so ever since then, I've always believed when people say, you know, oh, that's just a speech, speeches don't matter, words don't matter in politics, that's an example of words that really mattered, uh, words that matter to our community in Indianapolis, uh, words that uh, bent and changed politics. Uh, sadly, of course, a couple months later, Bobby Kennedy himself was assassinated, and the hope uh, and the, the healing that he tried to bring about that night was cut off, but uh, but words do matter in politics. Events do matter. Uh, they can change people. They can change history, as Bobby Kennedy proved that night in Indianapolis. They certainly inspired you to head probably from Indianapolis to Washington, work in uh, your your uh, education at Georgetown University and then at Harvard Law School, and then it brings you back to D.C. Uh, to work on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I want to hear a little bit of some uh, news that happened uh, while Chairman Biden was running that committee and get you to reflect on it. We have two very credible people with very, very diverse positions 
on an issue that if we could ever find a way, and I know of no way, that, uh, that if no one in the whole world uh, that I'm aware of, at least involved in this process, finds uh, enjoyable. You're a young Harvard Law graduate. You're working in the Senate Judiciary Committee. You have a Supreme Court nominee, Clarence Thomas, and a uh, accuser, Anita Hill. What is young Ron Klain? Uh, what's your involvement, and what are you thinking at that moment? Well, I was uh, chief counsel of the Judiciary Committee at that time, and uh, the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill thing was certainly the most complex and controversial thing uh, we handled. And uh, uh, I believed um, Professor Hill uh, and uh, believed her testimony and uh, have always been frustrated that uh, more people didn't at the time. And uh, for better or worse, I think a lot of the credit uh, for that goes to uh, the very clever people uh, in, the, um, in the Bush White House uh, and particularly to Ken Duberstein, who was advising uh, Judge Thomas. They made a, a very controversial choice. And this, again, goes back to polyoptics, yep. Josh. Um, uh, the committee had offered, as a matter of courtesy, Judge Thomas the opportunity to testify first in the Thomas Hill hearings and the hearings, special com- hearings the committee had about the charges Professor Hill had brought. And they offered Judge Thomas, because he was the nominee, the opportunity to testify first, uh, which you would have thought would be the more powerful and impactful time to testify. But they made, uh, uh, Judge Thomas and his handlers made a choice to go second. And uh, even though that meant they would be testifying at night, and I remember most of us thought that there was Uh, No way the networks would preempt their usual programming. Uh, There was a baseball playoff game that night even. No way they'd preempt all that to show a congressional hearing. And uh, we thought that the decision the Thomas forces had made disadvantaged Thomas, advantaged Hill. Hill would get the first word. Hill would be live on national television preempting daytime programming, and Thomas wouldn't be seen live. And, in fact, uh, the networks did all preempt their programming. Thomas got to speak to a primetime audience, a larger audience in television, and I think that affected uh, in, in the short term, not, you know, not over history, not in the long run, but in the short term, uh, that gave his remarks greater impact and moved public opinion uh, more his way, I think. And so, uh, you know, credit to them, credit to Thomas's handlers for coming up with that strategy um, that certainly advantaged his um, efforts in the confirmation process. Um, moving ahead maybe 15 years or so, uh, we, ha- we find ourselves uh, in, at the War Memorial in Nashville, Tennessee in November 2000. And this program, Polyoptics, has been host to Michael Feldman and uh, David Morehouse to get their views on what happened that night, uh, that auspicious night. I want to hear uh, then-campaign chairman Bill Daly speaking at 4 a.m. in the morning. Vice President Gore and Senator Lieberman are fully prepared to concede and to support Governor Bush if and when he is officially elected president. But this race is simply too close to call. And until the results, the recount is concluded and the results of Florida Florida become official, our campaign continues. Ron Klain, you can't put Al Gore on the podium that night. Uh, where are you at that moment, and what's the thinking, and then where do you end up uh, 24 hours later? This is a highlight of the most miserable moments of my life, Josh. <laughs> we do that on Bollyoptics. It's, it's, good. it's a great, great, great rundown here. Um, so uh, I was um, in the 
suite with uh, Vice President Gore uh, and others um, at the uh, at the Lowe's Hotel in Nashville that evening uh, when the Vice President made the decision to go to the War Room World to concede. Uh, I will confess uh, that I just didn't have the heart to go to that event, and so I went two floors down to my room in the hotel and uh, crawled in bed next to my wife and decided to watch the thing on TV when my cell phone rang. And I will never forget this was Ron Fournier of the Associated Press. Good old Ron. And Ron called and said, why is Vice President Gore conceding? And I said, well, because we lost the election, Ron. And he said, well, uh, the Associated Press, the nation's oldest news organization, has not called the election. We believe it's too close to call. And I hung up with Ron Fournier and got on my phone and started working the phones and tried to get a hold of Michael Hooley back in the boiler room and uh, Feldman uh, in the motorcade, Morehouse in the motorcade. And, and I, was, I was part of a phone tree of people who uh, got the news to the folks in the motorcade. They were getting it through multiple sources, multiple places uh, that, in fact, uh, Florida was, in fact, too close to call and the vice president's decision to concede should be rolled back. So... Uh, I, I then went, uh, before the motorcade even got back from the War Memorial, I went out to our headquarters, which was in the outskirts of Nashville, and got there before they got back and was meeting with the lawyers, uh, talking about what our options were and whatnot. And uh, Bill Daly, who was chairman of the Gore campaign, uh, asked me to, when he got back to the headquarters from the War Memorial, asked me to lead the first team down to Tallahassee. That morning, we got up, we didn't get up because we never went to bed. A couple hours later, probably three or four hours later, we got on a charter plane, flew down to Tallahassee, and started what ultimately became the recount. You land in Tallahassee. Have you ever, uh, have you ever been to Tallahassee? Do you know your way around? Do you know which law office you're going to use? Well, uh, I hadn't uh, been to Tallahassee before, but our state director, our state headquarters was in Tallahassee. Our state director was a guy named Nick Baldick. Nick Baldick, of course. Who, uh, who I knew quite well, and uh, I went over to Nick's office, and Nick uh, took, care of, took care of that and, and was a, uh, a critical, uh, somewhat unheralded, but critical element of our team down there um, and uh, really helped put all, the, all, all that together. Uh, Jill Alper, Alper uh, who you probably course. also know, uh, flew down uh, right afterwards and really took over the logistics of getting us organized on the ground and ready to uh, ready to roll. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Kevin Spacey as Ron Klain in HBO's Recount. Monica's worried that if we do lose, I'm never going to get a job again in law or in politics. Me too. You know what's funny about all this? Nope. I'm not even sure I like Al Gore. That's Kevin Spacey as Ron Klain and Dennis Leary as Michael Hooley. Uh, Ron, accurate in the script? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, inaccurate in almost every respect in this regard. I mean, uh, the script for Recount is a fantastic thing written by a man named Danny Strong who's gone on to uh, wrote Game Change yep. uh, and now uh, is writing the uh, – uh, wrote, wrote a movie called The Butler, which is about to come out, which is going to be, I think, a huge, huge film about life at the White House uh, from an African-American perspective – and uh, now is writing actually the the Hunger Games movies, but you know Danny got the most important things of that story right, and the big things are are, are right in the, the movie. And it, and if you want to know generally what happened in Florida, uh, how the recount generally went, uh, you know I think it's a great telling of that story. But a lot of the the color around it, a lot of the personal elements, are um, are an effort by Danny to dramatize things. Uh, starting off with the basic exchange you just had. Uh, Michael Hooley was never in Tallahassee of in course. the 36 that was more days. Like Nick. Uh, and uh, 
and I was never in Southeast Florida where Michael was. Michael, I talked every day 10 times a day, but we certainly were never in a bar together in Tallahassee uh, uh, drinking away on a Saturday night as we were in that scene. Uh, I did like Al Gore. Uh, I had worked for the man for four years. I had uh, done everything I could to get him elected before uh, the day of, uh, of Election Day and uh, was happy to be fighting for him, not just as a matter of law, but as a matter of politics down in Florida during the recount. Uh, so what did you, no one expected uh, that night in Nashville that you'd be on a charter going to Tallahassee or that you'd spend the next 36 days on this constitutional issue, both before the Florida Supreme Court and the, then the U.S. Supreme Court. What did you learn about the law over that month and a half? Well, you're right, Josh. I mean, you, you know, there are very few things that are absolutely certain in politics. But, uh, you know, as, you, as you're in a campaign and you're grinding down and you're exhausted and whatnot, the one thing you always know about a campaign is it's over on Election Day and you can sleep in the next day and recover a little bit and life goes on. And so the idea that this campaign wasn't going to be over on Election Day and that indeed we had no idea when it was going to be over at all was definitely a, a physical and a mental challenge, I think, for everyone. Uh, what I learned about the law in Tallahassee is this. We have the greatest legal system in the world. And... It is founded on great principles and administered by great lawyers and great judges. What it cannot do uh, is handle um, very hard things very quickly. Uh, Great change in our laws, justice in our laws, takes time. It took years and years for the Supreme Court to get to the outcome in Brown versus the board. It will have taken uh, years and years to get to whatever the Supreme Court ultimately decides this spring uh, in the gay marriage cases, for example. Uh, The challenge of what we faced in Bush v. Gore was that we were asking the courts to rectify a horrible wrong that had happened in Florida, a partisan and inappropriate way in which the ballots had been counted, uh, disregard for the law in which the way the ballots had been counted. But the courts had to address that in an extremely tight timeline given the time allowed under our system, uh, our presidential system, to have the casting and counting of electoral college votes. And when you put that tight timeline on our court system, it comes up short. uh, And that, unfortunately, is what happened in the recount. So you would think that Ron Klain would have earned uh, a long respite from uh, presidential politics after 2000. You uh, are deeply involved in politics. Senator Kerry's campaign, the debate prep against uh, President Bush. You come back to uh, work in the White House under President Obama as Vice President Biden's chief of staff. And as as you now sort of take a step back and work uh, in the private sector with Steve Case, uh, I do notice, again, as we go back to social media, uh, the cavelling that goes on at the Klain household for what Monica has done uh, at DOD with Secretary Panetta and the, the new role that she's taken on. I mean, this has been a family affair in the Klain family in terms of contribution to public service. Well, it's kind of you to say that. Um, my wife also has had, as you mentioned, a big career in government service, public service. Uh, she, for the past last year, the Obama administration uh, first term, worked for Secretary, Secretary Panetta at the Pentagon and played a big role in having the combat exclusion uh, that kept women from serving in combat lifted um, and was very grateful that Secretary Panetta gave her one of the four original copies of the memo lifting that exclusion uh, and the signing pen for that. Uh, very early on in her career, uh, she'd gone to college on an ROTC scholarship and served in the military. 
uh, was one of uh, the earliest generation of women uh, to come through the ROTC program and, and to, to serve, uh, serve in the military. So she found it obviously incredibly gratifying uh, 30 years later to be able to come back to the Pentagon at a senior level and help uh, that combat exclusion get lifted so that um, we have the very best troops defending our country around the world uh, without regard to their gender and that women who want to serve our country in this most generous and uh, important way by defending our country in combat uh, are able to do so. Can't let you go, Ron Klain, without speculating that you may spend a few more years uh, on the, uh, working with Steve Case in the private sector, but that you may be drawn in to a 2016 campaign that may feature people that you've worked with on all sides uh, very closely with, and the notion that Vice President Biden uh, might uh, run for the Democratic notion, uh, Democratic nomination, as might Secretary Hillary Clinton. What is the thinking in the Biden camp about evaluating the campaign and when to make a decision and when to show your hand? Well, I think the Vice President Biden's thinking is that he's Vice President of the United States. He's got a full plate of being Vice President, including, as we discussed earlier, right now, trying to get these common sense gun measures passed through the Congress. He's focused on doing his job. There will come a time later in these four years to think about whether or not he wants to run for president. He's done it twice before. I uh, certainly uh, perfectly qualified and capable of doing it a third time if that's what he chooses to do. But that decision is off in the future. And job number one right now is doing his job as vice president. And that's what he and his team are 100 percent focused on. Meanwhile, as the spring continues, we watch the premiere of uh, Veep this week. The balls come out of the uh, bin at the Klain household. We will uh, enjoy hopefully watching the uh, election of your one of your first bosses, Ed Markey, to the U.S. Senate, and uh, and also graduation of, of your daughter from Columbia. Amazing, the striking picture that you put on Facebook between when I first came to the White House in 1993, your daughter's first school, and uh, and now being able to go off into the real world. You know, it's funny you say that, Josh, because uh, you may remember in 1993, President Clinton became the first sitting president to celebrate Hanukkah in the White House. Uh, now we take That's it for right. granted that our presidents celebrate some of the Jewish holidays as well, but it was a little bit controversial when President Clinton did it in 1993 and um, made a decision to light a menorah. Uh, on the desk in the Oval Office, yep. and it kind of came together a little bit at the last minute, and so a last-minute call went out for children. People needed children to appear in this photo op. I probably arranged it. And, uh, and so I was, uh, you know, a lot of people at the White House, young staffers, uh, were young enough uh, that they didn't have kids. I did have a kid. I had a, a two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old at the time. And so my daughter Hannah was one of the young people clustered around the Resolute desk in the Oval Office as President Clinton lit a menorah, and began uh, the idea that presidents could celebrate Hanukkah publicly. And to think about her then, this little two-and-a-half-year-old with her braids, uh, hanging around the desk in the Oval Office watching the president light the candles, to now, uh, 20 years later, seeing her as a college graduate, uh, reminds me how old I am and how long it's been. Ron Klain, Mazel Tov, and thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. long it's been. Ron Klain, Mazel Tov, and thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh long it's been. Ron Klain, Mazel Tov, and thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter 
at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Thank you.